We next welcome Dr. George Aranda, who's a former cognitive neuroscientist, um, a science educator, science communicator, and devoted sci-file. He's, he's, he's the curator of Science Book A Day, where he has featured over 500 books and interviewed 150 science book authors. He's about to start a possible on 3D printing and education, and I think he'd like your support. George. Hi there, it's my first time presenting here and it's lovely to present at a sold out event most of the time. I give lectures and I'm quite impressed when my students actually turn up. So it's nice and daunting at the same time to have so many people here. Now for my science villain tonight, I'm going to talk about Louis Agassiz. Who's heard of Louis Agassiz? One person, you can get out at this point. <laughs> now Louis Agassiz, if you had some thoughts about it, was not the great-grandfather of an American tennis player who one, at one time was married to Brooke Shields, no. And the fact that you haven't heard of him is kind of surprising because he was someone who was a preeminent scientist in the United States in the 1800s. And so today I'm going to talk about him and we're going, well, at the time he was someone of renown that was comparable to Darwin. So it's kind of funny we've not really heard of him before. And so today I'm going to talk about him and see why we haven't really heard about him. Now, Louis Agassiz was born in Switzerland in 1807. He became, he started off as a, a scholar interested in natural history, particularly botany. He received his PhD in 1829 and decided to do another doctorate in medicine after that in 1830 and specialised in zoology and geology at that time. He was really interested in fish. Now, this is a time when you could actually get on a boat to Brazil or Chile or Argentina and make your career by getting specimens of fish, which he did. He liked to get specimens of stuff. Get specimens of fish, look at them, catalogue them, bang, PhD, right there. <laughs> Times have changed a little bit since then. <laughs> so he studied fish and then he moved on to look at fossilised fish. And at that time, he started winning scientific medals. He was invited to become the, a foreign member of the... Royal Society in London. But do you get to be a world famous scientist for studying fish? No, no is the right answer, you don't. <laughs> so how he became, his claim to fame was with glaciers. Now around the 1840s, he, he, was, he was from Switzerland, around the 1840s people started to realise that some of the rock formations that you saw at the top of the Alps were similar on different mountains and they started to theorise that the rock structures had gotten there because of glaciers but no one really knew how that occurred. So what he did, he built a hut on the R Glacier, that's double A-R, every time I say it, I want to say R Glacier <laughs> for Pirate Day. Um, so, he, so he literally built a hut and he lived on the hut to see how the glaciers moved and to look at the actual formation of the glaciers themselves. And so after, after he'd done this, he wrote a book, unsurprisingly called The Study of Glaciers. And he explained how the actual glaciers moved around the rock, through the rock, crushing rock, and they would form particular patterns and striations in the rock as they went. But he went further than this. He talked about some of the glaciers that you could see in Switzerland, and he came to the conclusion that 
Switzerland in the past had been like Greenland with lots and lots of glaciers. And so instead of having a number of small glaciers that moved around the mountains, there was one glacial sheet that had covered the northwest of Switzerland and was large enough to get over the Swiss, uh, the Swiss Alps. In effect, Louis Agassiz had started the study of glaciology, which is very important to this day in the age of climate change or climate change denial, depending on your political persuasion. And because of the success of the book and the implications of the things that he found, he became very famous. He was given many awards. He was made fellows of many scientific organisations. People gave him money, organisations, individuals. The King of Prussia was a big fan at one point. Now, of course, as he did at the time, becoming a great success, you go on a series of lectures through the United States. And in 1846, he did just that. And as, part of, and as a result of the lectures, he was offered a professorship at Harvard University. He went on to found the Lawrence Scientific School and the Museum of Comparative Zoology, where he was the director until his death. Now, as a professor, he took on a lot of different students. Some, or many, who would become quite prominent in, in the US in science. People like David Starr Jordan, who was the founding president of Stanford University. Um, Joseph Joel Asif Allen, who was the first curator of birds and mammals at the, the, um, Muse the American Museum of Natural History. And William James, if you, so if you've heard of him, he's often referred to as the father of American psychology. So you can clearly see why he was referred to as the father of American science, which is one of the biographies that I read rather recently. And, it, well, and certain authors claim that he created the first graduate program of science in the United States. But it wasn't just that he was an interesting scientist. He was a breath of fresh air to Boston at that time. You can imagine he was a, uh, a man from Switzerland with a big personality. He loved drinks. He loved food. He loved cigars. And this was a breath of fresh air. He was a bon vivant in the middle of Boston during the puritanical kind of ages. So his personality got him to open doors more than just his science did. Now, to give you some idea of his renown, I had to write this down, I'm sorry. To give you some idea of his renown, here are some things that are named after him. Lake Agassiz. There are three Mount Agassiz in the world. There are two Agassiz peaks. There is the Agassiz Horn in the Alps. There is the Agassiz Glacier, the Agassiz Creek. There is a crater on Mars named after him. There's a promontorium on the moon named after him. There's Cape Agassiz. There is an asteroid belt <laughs> named after me. It's 2267 Agassiz. Of course, there are a couple of animals named after him, including a chichil, a few flies, a couple of beetles, and a desert tortoise. Of course, there were institutions named after him, schools and suburbs, especially in the Bostonian kind of area. And you say you've never heard of him. Why haven't you heard of him? Of course, tonight's speech, our talks tonight, are not about the successes of people, but why was he a villain? Let me tell you. For starters, Agassiz was a creationist, which is not a surprise in the 1800s that people were creationists, but he went further than this. He, he subscribed to an idea called polygenism, which is the idea that people come from a particular area. They were created by God and given skills and attributes that would help them in that particular area, and that these attributes were unchanging. Now, you've got to think about the time. This flew in the face of natural selection. 
um, he was a contemporary of Darwin, and he refused to believe in the idea of evolution. Agassiz thought that any idea that the environment could change a creature was an insult to God. Now, of course, as a scientist, you would expect he's got some evidence for these ideas. Now, some of, it, some of his ideas came from kind of logical extensions of the Bible, Noah's Ark story, those kind of things. But he also had biological evidence. He was interested in the work of Samuel George Morton, who was an anthropologist who had an extensive collection of skulls. And at that time, you did things like you measured, you measured skulls, different capacities and those kind of things. You came to conclusions about the size of the brain that went within it, and you make then certain assumptions about the intelligence of the people um, that have brains that size. Unsurprisingly, Morton and Agassiz decided that whites had the biggest brain capacity and blacks had the lowest brain capacity, unsurprisingly. Now, subsequent scientists like Stephen Jay Gould have thought that Agassiz and Morton were responsible for a little bit of doctoring of their results. They would ignore samples that didn't agree with their claims and they would highlight ones that obviously did. Now, you can imagine the controversy of that time. So this is America that's just living through the Civil War and slavery, and to get the preeminent scientists of your day giving some credence to ideas of polygenism is not a good thing. So much so that scientific journals actually published papers on polygenism at that time. But Agassiz went even further than this and used his role as an elite scientist at that time to actually claim that relationships between blacks and whites was immoral and there should be segregation. Of course, this was avidly taken up by people who were pro-slavery at that time. Now, Agassiz claimed throughout his life that he wasn't a racist and that he wasn't pro-slavery, but at the same time, he maintained his beliefs in, in spite of the growing evidence for evolution at that time. His own son, Alexander Agassiz, who went on to be a great scientist, disagreed with his dad after a particular amount of time, and even his wife, who had travelled with him around the world towards the end of his career, in her writings, she kind of thought, well, I think maybe Darwin might be on the money right now. <laughs> but Louis Agassiz never changed his mind, and I guess that's the reason why I've picked him as my villain tonight. He wasn't evil. He didn't want to blow up bigger stuff. He didn't misrepresent vaccines but he didn't change his mind based on all the evidence that was in front of him. And that, to me, in science, is the path to the dark side. <laughs> now, of course, many of the landmarks and things that were named after Agassiz are no longer named after Agassiz. So that's why you haven't heard of him. But to finish, I want to just tell you a brief story that sums up Agassiz for me. Now, there used to be a facade on the building, uh, the zoology building at Stanford University. And at the front of that building were statues of great American scientists. So you can imagine like that. And then in 1906, there was the great earthquake of San Francisco. One statue fell off. <laughs> Obviously, it's Mr. Agassiz himself. And if you go on Google Images, you can see a great picture of Agassiz's statue punching through the concrete at the bottom of that building. And apparently the story goes from the Stanford president at that time. Somebody, Dr. Angel perhaps, remarked that Agassiz was great in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> Thank you very much.